Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Living for More Than Bread and Water for the third Sunday in Lent. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March 27, 2011. The Brazilian Paulo Coles books have sold a hundred million copies, been translated into 70 languages, and sold in 150 countries. But life was not always so sweet for Colho. When he followed his childhood dream of being a writer, his parents twice committed him to a mental institution, where his treatments included electroconvulsive therapy. He dropped out of law school, traveled, joined the drug culture, dabbled in journalism and theater, and became a political agitator. After being kidnapped and tortured, he wanted a more normal life and later enjoyed success as a songwriter and music executive. But Koho's soul remained restless. In 1986, he had a vision of a stranger which stranger he actually met two months later in a cafe in Amsterdam. The stranger advised him to reconnect with his Catholic roots and to make the 500-mile medieval pilgrimage to Compostela in northern Spain, where legend says the bones of St. James are buried. The pilgrimage convinced Coelho that he was living, quote, only for bread and water. Two years later, in 1988, he published The Alchemist, a simple fable about a shepherd boy named Santiago. Like the author himself, in the book Santiago vows not to live like his sheep, nor even like his own father, both of whom, says the book, lived only for bread and water. Our Lenten rituals remind us of this ancient truth that we don't live by bread alone, but by God's sustaining spirit. Deuteronomy 8.3 in Matthew 4.4 4. This was precisely what the Israelites forgot in this week's Old Testament lesson in Exodus 17. At Lent we daub ashes on our forehead to remember our mortality. From dust you came, and to dust you shall return, Genesis 3.19. We abstain from alcohol or meat to acknowledge our embodiment. But these outward acts of a physical nature aren't ends in themselves. They point us to inward realities of a spiritual nature. In other words, material sustenance is good and necessary. But living only for bread and water leads to spiritual malnourishment. In the Gospel this week, a most unlikely teacher makes this point. Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well reminds us that the community he inaugurated calls for a people of inclusion, not exclusion. Dignity, not denigration. Empowerment rather than exploitation and affirmation rather than marginalization. 
His simple request for a drink of water provoked a dialogue with a marginalized woman that teaches us that God does not desire any human being to shrivel and die from a parched soul. Rather, he longs to quench the deepest needs and desires of each one of us with the living water of his spirit. As Jesus traveled from Judea to Galilee, he stopped in the town of Sychar around noontime, tired and thirsty from the journey. He sat down by a well and asked a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. That Jesus, a Jew, would talk to a Samaritan shocked the woman. That he would talk to a woman surprised his own disciples. In fact, through death or divorce, this woman had burned through five marriages and was then living with a boyfriend, not her husband. When you connect the dots of her story, you realize that in her one person, this woman epitomized the many ways that society marginalizes people. Jesus shatters all the taboos that held sway then and now. Gender discrimination, ritual purity, socioeconomic poverty, religious hostility, and the moral stigma of serial marriage. In marked contrast to the male rabbi and scholar Nicodemus in the previous chapter of John, the Samaritan woman displayed spiritual thirst and candor about her many problems and genuine insight about her real needs. She longed not only for literal water, but for the living water that Jesus offered her. So much so that in her excitement, she forgot her water jar when she returned to town. Spiritual nourishment suddenly became more important than material sustenance. This thoroughly powerless woman made such a powerful impression upon Jesus and her own neighbors that John included an interesting eyewitness detail about Jesus' itinerary. Upon the neighbor's request, we read in John chapter 4, verse 40, he stayed two days in the village. The woman embraced Jesus as the Messiah. Her witness converted many other fellow Samaritans in town, and she became the cause of the story's punchline in chapter 4, verse 42. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we really know that this man is the Savior of the world. As in so many gospel stories about God's alternative community, John 4 subverts and reverses conventional human wisdom and power relations. Jesus not only engaged a disreputable, ostracized foreign woman, he cast her as the hero of the story, a symbol of life in his kingdom, and as an ardent witness to his universal lordship. She warns us of religiosity that turns a deaf ear to the disenfranchised, in which masks an otherwise smug, exclusionary, and self-serving faith. Jesus also offers each one of us the living water that is the life-giving action of his spirit in the deepest recesses of our being. 
In the beautiful poetry of the Hebrew prophet Isaiah 55, 1-3, God welcomes every person, rich or poor, to drink deeply of what he alone can give us, and what the mere bread and water that our culture offers, money, jobs, prestige, the best university degree, or the latest diet, none of which can ever satisfy. Isaiah writes, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy and wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. The Samaritan woman at the well is ultimately a story about the woman in the water. She invites us to the inward personal renewal symbolized by the outward act of drinking water. John 4 verse 14. Everyone who drinks this ordinary well water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And for further reflection, consider the Lenten prayer from St. Ephraim of Syria of the 4th century. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk. But grant rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. Yea, O Lord and King, grant me to see my own transgressions and not to judge my brother. For blessed art thou unto ages of ages. Amen. For books this week, I review a title called Julian of Norwich, a contemplative biography. The author is Amy Frickholm, Brewster, Massachusetts, Paraclete Press, 2010, 147 pages. Her mother said that she asked too many questions. As a girl, she had an insatiable desire to experience the love of God beyond the rituals of the church. She survived the plagues of 1349 and 1362, which decimated three-quarters of the population of Norwich on England's east coast. Then came the visions, the showings, or what she called the ravings, during a period of sickness when she almost died. Although not a nun, but a layperson who lived a mixed life in both the secular and sacred realms, she even had the temerity to ask the bishop to bless her plans to live alone as an anchoress in a tiny cell next to the church. The bishop agreed, and so from there she read, prayed, dispensed spiritual wisdom, 
and for twenty years questioned and meditated upon her continuing visions. Her ultimate act of audacity was not only to believe that God had truly spoken to her in her sixteen visions, and that the visions exceeded the limited wisdom of the church, but also that God intended for her to write them down in a book so that ordinary believers could benefit from them. This was the age of the Crusades, of Chaucer, when John Wycliffe and the Lollards were martyred for religious transgression, and social conventions greatly restricted the acceptable roles for women. Nonetheless, even today, Julian of Norwich, 1342-1416, is best remembered for having written the first book composed by a woman in English the title of which is called A Revelation of Love. How her manuscript ever survived is part mystery and part miracle. As Amy Frickholm shows in her short biography written for a general audience, Julian remains a teacher for our times who re-envisioned the relationship between God and the soul. The challenge for any biographer of Julian is that we know very little about her life. We're not sure if she ever married. We don't know anything about her education. But in the hands of Frickholm, a staff writer for the Christian Century, who earned her Ph.D. from Duke University in literature, Julian springs to life even though she lived 600 years ago. Julian's basic message was both simple and radical. In one vision, Jesus spoke to her, Lo, how I love thee. And so in one of my own favorite sayings, Julian advises us that, quote, The greatest honor we can give Almighty God is to live gladly because of the knowledge of his love. The author is Amy Frickholm. The title, Julian of Norwich, a, a contemplative biography. For film this week, I review a title called Which Way Home from the year 2007. Rebecca Camisa's film, funded by a Fulbright scholarship, documents the harrowing misfortunes of the 100,000 children a year who hop the trains for the 1,500-mile journey from Central America and Mexico into the United States. The film opens with a bloated corpse floating down a river, but that's only one of the dangers that also include the vast desert, dismemberment or death from falling off the train, corrupt police, smugglers, tunnels, rape and hunger. The children travel alone, fleeing abusive families, or hoping to connect with parents already in the United States. Camisa interviews most of the players in this heartbreaking story. Hearst drivers who make daily deliveries of unrecognizable corpses back to families in the village. Humanitarian groups at train stations that offer free food, medical care and wise advice. Immigration officials bereaved mothers waiting for the results of DNA tests to confirm their child's death, and many of the children themselves on the trains. Camisa avoids any political commentary 
And instead, let's Kevin, Fito, Juan, Olga, and the other kids speak for themselves. This movie, Which Way Home, will draw comparisons with the similar film of 2009 called Sid Nombre, without name. The title, Which Way Home? And finally this week, for poetry, we continue our series by Gerard Manley Hopkins, 1844 to 1889. The title of this very short poem is called Heaven Haven. I have desired to go where springs not fail, to fields where flies no sharp and sided hail in a few lilies blow. And I have asked to be where no storms come, where the green swell is in the havens dumb, and out of the swing of the sea. Heaven Haven by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 27th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.